Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again on the show. Uh, I want to start by addressing the elephant in the room. I am distressed, worried, upset, uh, quite frightened by the leaked draft opinion that came out of the Supreme Court just this past week. Uh, This is a decision that, if enacted, is going to have really drastic effects on the country that I live in. Um, People are going to die as a result. People are going to be harmed, drastically harmed. And the struggle for civil rights in this country is going to take a massive step backwards. There's no way to see it in any other way. And this decision is wrong. It's wrong on the face of it. And I know some of you might say, hey, Adam, I thought you were supposed to be the objective guy. I thought the show was called Factually. Isn't that an opinion, not a fact? But there are times when the facts are so stark and clear when you look at what we know about the procedure of abortion medically, what we, when you look at what we know about the history of the Constitution, when you look at what we know about what human rights and freedom mean, that it's impossible not to come to a judgment. And for me, this is one of those times when, I mean, the fact is that this decision is wrong. But here's what I want to say about this, because I I think it's really easy to lose hope at this moment, to say, hey, this decision is permanent. Uh, It's going to be very hard to reverse. And there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, to that I say... There's never been a time when this has not been a struggle, going all the way back to the decision, the original Roe versus Wade decision, or the decades of advocacy and activism that led to them. There was never a time when this was not a struggle. It was a struggle the day before this draft opinion leaked, and it'll be a struggle the day after this decision is finally handed down. There are Americans who fought for this cause under conditions that were far worse than the ones that we fight them under today. And... It's incumbent upon us to keep that fight going regardless of how things change day to day, that we always have the opportunity, I believe so deeply, to do things that will create a better tomorrow. That's something I intend to keep doing, and it's something I hope you intend to keep doing as well. Finally, this episode is not about this issue. We uh, had a different episode planned for this week, despite the news. But if you're interested in learning more about what a future without Roe versus Wade could look like in America, or about the history of the Supreme Court and why the myth of how it operates is so far from the reality, you might check out our past episodes with Mary Ziegler, the historian of abortion rights in America, or my interview with Eric Siegel, the constitutional law professor, who told me all about how the Supreme Court really works. Those are two fantastic episodes that are really relevant this week. Go check them out, my interviews with Mary Ziegler and Eric Siegel. Now, let's move on to other things. Just some other quick housekeeping. I want to remind you that, by the way, speaking of the government, my new Netflix show about the federal government drops on May 19th worldwide. No matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to watch this show on May 19th. I hope you'll check it out. And if you support this show by listening to it, I hope you also consider supporting it on Patreon. If you want to join our live book club, if you want to hear bonus podcast episodes, if you want to see exclusive stand-up I don't post anywhere else, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Now, let's get to today's episode. You know, it used to be that when you bought something, you owned it. Pretty straightforward concept. You know, the object was in your house, and since no one else could hopefully get into your house, well, no one else could do anything to that object. It was yours. You owned it both by law and, uh, you know, just by virtue of it physically being in your possession. 
and that gave you a lot of rights over it. You could fix it when it was broken, or you could sell it to another person. Hell, you could lend it to a friend and then get it back a couple weeks later, just like we used to do with Nintendo games growing up. It was a golden time. But then, a bunch of companies decided that you fixing the thing you bought, you selling the thing you bought, you lending out the thing you bought, wasn't good for their profit margins. And over the many decades since, those companies have sought to build ever greater control over the products they make even after you purchase them. Take those Nintendo games, for instance. When you think about it, the original Nintendo console, the Nintendo Entertainment System, well, it was just a computer that played a certain sort of software, right? It played games. And on most computers, anybody who wants to can write software for that computer, right? You didn't need permission from Apple to write software for the Apple IIe. But that wasn't the case with Nintendo. Oh, no. Nintendo closed their system down. They wanted control over what software was published, so they required every Nintendo game to have a seal of Nintendo approval on it, and they even put in a hardware feature that prevented non-approved games from being played. It was called the 10NES Lockout Chip, and it was a special chip that expected a certain input from the cartridge, and if it didn't see it, the game would not play. So unlike a regular computer from that era where you could write your own software or even debug software someone else wrote, on a Nintendo computer, you could only run the software that Nintendo wanted you to, and you had no ability to create your own software at all. Now, that was just an early canary in the coal mine, because like with so much in the last 40 years, things have only gotten worse since. Today, our hardware is controlled by their manufacturers in ever more elaborate ways. Up until last year, your iPhone was only repairable by an official or semi-official Apple person with official Apple parts. Going it alone was nearly impossible. And if you try and repair, say, your broken iPhone screen with a third-party supplier, it could literally destroy your ability to use essential features of the phone because the phone checks to see whether or not the screen is an official Apple product, and if it's not, it shuts that shit down. Apple and other companies have even lobbied against rules that would make their products more repairable by the consumer. And it's not just Apple. John Deere, the tractor company, has made it harder for farmers to repair their equipment without going through official channels. They do this by installing software on the tractors that monitors what the tractor is doing and who tries to access it. And this leads us to an even bigger problem, because today, so many of the devices that used to be just, you know, plain old hardware, just simple circuitry, are now run by software that connects to the internet and can be controlled from somewhere outside of your home. So think about it. Any connected device you own, a Sonos speaker, a router, a thermostat, a Nest Fire Alarm, a doorbell, has the potential to be controlled by its manufacturer from elsewhere. And that is, not to put too fine a point on it, kind of fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> but why? What actually makes this practice so terrible? I mean, it sucks to not have control over the things you paid for, but are there even larger ramifications? Well, to discuss what they are, our guest today is Aaron Perzanowski, a law professor at Case Western Reserve University and the author of The Right to Repair, Reclaiming the Things We Own. Okay, we're here with Aaron Perzanowski. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Aaron. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So you have a new book out called Right to Repair. Let's jump into it. How do companies try to take away our right to repair and why is that a problem? So companies have developed a whole range of strategies to make repair more difficult, more expensive, 
and to really exert control over when and how and whether consumers can repair their devices. So that starts with the design of the hardware itself, um, choosing to use screws and fasteners that make it difficult to disassemble a product, using software restrictions that make it difficult for you to uh, access the components that you need to replace or disabling components uh, when they have been replaced. And so they, they use this range of, of tools in a way that really makes it challenging for consumers to exert the kind of control that we've become used to uh, over the years when we're repairing the devices we own. So that's true for uh, our vehicles, our smartphones. It's true for the um, agricultural equipment that farmers rely on. It's true for medical equipment. And so we're seeing these kinds of barriers being thrown up uh, really all across the economy in a way that has like really dramatic effects. So you said that uh, this sort of violates what we've grown used to as consumers, but I would actually posit that we've grown not used to repairing our old devices. I mean, when I see an image of a guy with, uh, you know, guy or a gal in their front driveway with the hood of their car open and, you know, they're, they're elbow deep in uh, motor oil, uh, you know, fixing their car. I'm like, that's an old timey image. That's like from, you know, America in the 1950s or whatever. That's not from today. If you pop the hood of, you know, even the the 2010 Prius that that uh, me and my girlfriend had for many years, there's not a lot you can get into in there. <laughs> right. Um, so so I mean, this this seems like it's been a trend over many decades that we've been moving away from. People have become unused to repairing their devices in a lot of ways. So I think you're absolutely right that this is a trend and a trend that has really uh, developed a lot of momentum over the past two or three decades in particular. Um, it really depends on the kind of historical scale at which you want to have the conversation. Repair has really been essential to human technology as long as there has been human technology. So we can go all the way back, you know, millions of years to, you know, hand axes that, you know, that, uh, that, um, you know, proto humans were repairing. And <laughs> we see, you know, every stage in human technological development, repair gets more sophisticated, uh, along with the technology. And that trend really continues up until, the early part of the 20th century when we start to see companies realize that it's in their economic best interest to make repair more difficult. So this is really a phenomenon of the last century or so. And as I said, it's really sped up with the introduction of uh, software and kind of network connectivity into our devices. That's really the key suite of tools that have enabled these repair restrictions to emerge in, in more recent years. Well, so let's talk about briefly, Before I have, a, I have so many questions about this and I find this topic fascinating, but I, before we get anywhere, I, I just wanna talk about what we're losing by losing the ability to repair our devices. Like what is, what is bad about that? I mean, because uh, let's be honest, a lot of people who are consumers would not wanna repair their own devices. Uh, they, you know, they're not technically inclined and we want technology be usable by those people as well. And so they maybe don't have a problem just going to the genius bar or whatever. Um, but uh, so what, what are the, what are the knock-on effects of these devices becoming less repairable? So the first thing I would say is even if you're not like mechanically inclined yourself, you're not the kind of person that wants to like, 
you know, pop open the hood of your car and, and figure out what's wrong with it in your own garage, or you don't want to swap out the broken screen on your iPhone yourself, the right to repair still matters to you because it's going to influence the degree you the, the degree to which you have choices in the marketplace about which repair services to rely on. Do you only have to go or do you only have the ability to go to uh, the Apple store to repair your phone or to the dealer to repair your car? Or can you shop around for an independent repair provider who might be able to do uh, just as good of a job, but, you know, um, at a lower price or more quickly? So I think the most direct way this impacts consumers day to day is just in terms of price. It's really expensive uh, to have devices repaired in a market where repair services have essentially been monopolized rather than a market where we've got a lot of competition. You know, the guy at the kiosk at the mall is going to charge you a lot less than Apple is for the same repair. And I just think people ought to have that choice. And so we're talking about, you know, repair markets for consumer goods that, you know, total tens of billions of dollars a year. And that's money coming directly out of the, the pockets of consumers. Mm -hmm. It also means that, you know, your devices will last longer if repair is available. So instead of, you know, replacing your phone every two years, maybe you can make that phone last for three or four or five years. Over time, that saves people a lot of money. Um, so I think the, the economics here are really important. We see that in some markets, I think, more starkly than others. So when you look at, you know, farmers, um, you know, you spend $800,000, $900,000 on a tractor uh, for your livelihood, right? To, to yeah. do the work that, you know, that puts food on, on your, your family's table. And farmers in a lot of ways are kind of held hostage by the manufacturers of these devices because when it becomes necessary to, to have them repaired, um, they don't have the freedom to just go out and have the local mom and pop shop do it themselves or to do it on their own as farmers have done, you know, for, for centuries, they've got to pay these really high prices. So that's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, the other thing that I think people don't take into account to the extent they should is just the massive amount of environmental damage that comes from mm. the lack of repair. So we're replacing products more frequently. That leads to just mountains of electronic waste, you know, tens of millions of tons of electronic waste being produced every year. And a big part of that is because we are replacing things rather than repairing them. Yeah. And that's in the economic interest of these companies, right? Apple is profitable because it sells a couple hundred million iPhones a year. And that only works if people are getting rid of the old ones to buy new ones. And, and yeah. so repair kind of helps disrupt that. Yeah, if it's difficult to repair that phone or let's say, you know, your your iPhone starts to have problems. If there's a local repair shop where just a guy with a screwdriver can uh, swap something in or out on your phone to fix it very easily, you're a lot less likely to go buy a new phone. You're more likely to go pay that guy 50 bucks rather than go wait in the line at the Apple store at the mall or or buying a a brand new expensive phone. Let's talk about tractors because because it's an example that's often used here and it's one that I'm uh, really curious about. So, and and it's very easy to imagine, hey, you're a farmer, your tractor breaks down, you the tractor guy comes and fix it. That that's like seems like a very obvious thing that would have existed for like a century in American life. So what are tractor companies, John Deere and et cetera, doing to 
prevent those uh the you know those farmers from repairing i mean is it really is it really that nefarious where they are specifically blocking the process of repair itself or is there some other you know reason that that is, they're doing it so there are a couple of things that are going on and i think a lot of people probably assume you know the farm equipment is um while complicated fairly low tech but the reality is like a modern John Deere tractor, just like a modern, you know, car or truck has dozens of computers built into it. It's got all these electronic control mm. units and sensors that um, capture diagnostic information about how the tractor is performing. And so one problem that farmers run into is, you know, the there will be some malfunction and um, they don't have access to the diagnostic codes to understand what that malfunction actually means unless they use John Deere's proprietary software, which John Deere is uh, very eager to keep in its own hands exclusively. So you have a difficulty just in diagnosing what the, what the problem really is and how to fix it. Assuming you know how to fix it or you find someone who knows how to fix it, you go out and you buy the appropriate parts and you install them. And in many cases, John Deere's software will actually prevent a correctly installed component from functioning until they initialize it with their own computer software wow. code. So they have to send... They send a John Deere technician out from the dealer and you're paying for their travel time at, you know, $150 an hour or whatever it costs. They come to your farm, they connect their laptop to your device. Uh, they generate this payload file, which then has to be transferred to your tractor. And only then does the, you know, the original manufacturer part that you installed actually work. And so even if you want to rely on self-repair or independent repair, you can't get around paying John Deere. It's essentially mm -hmm. a tax that they're they're imposing on farmers who want to repair things themselves. And let me guess, let me guess, this special software that the hardware needs to work is proprietary to John Deere and no one else can get a copy of it. And if you were to reverse engineer it, or somehow get a copy of the software and try to use it independently, they would sue you or perhaps criminally investigate you. <laughs> so yeah, there's real risk here if yeah. you go out and try to find this software through other means and farmers have been doing it. Um, you know, there's, there's some great reporting a, a couple of years ago about farmers who were, um, you know, desperate to get their machinery working because, you know, oftentimes these are time sensitive repairs, right? Your crops need to come out of the ground. They need to be harvested. And if they're telling you it's going to be a week or two until the John Deere guy can come out, you need to fix it quickly. So they were going on the dark web and finding this John Deere software from mm. Ukrainian hackers and downloading it from, you know, these uh, password protected invite only websites as Amazing. a workaround. And, and that does create some some potential legal liability. That's wild. Um, I mean, and it raises the question, like what happens and, and this is unlikely, but but it can definitely happen in other sectors. I've had this happen to me myself. What happens if John Deere goes out of business, right? <laughs> right? And you have a tractor and, you know, that John Deere guy who you need to come out and, and give the payload, well, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and you want to keep your tractor running. That becomes impossible, right? 
Yeah, so this is a situation that we have seen play out in a whole range of areas. Consumers buy these products, what they think of as products, that really depend on embedded software or on networked connectivity to the cloud for functionality. And then the company maybe goes out of business. Uh, there was this social robot called Jibo that came out a few years ago, and it would tell you jokes and interact with you. Um, but all of its functionality lived on some server in the cloud. And when the company ran out of money, um, they shut down those servers and the robots stopped working. Um, sometimes companies just shut down these kinds of services because they don't think it's profitable anymore. One example there is uh, Nest um, made a, a home automation hub called the Revolve and they just decided they didn't want to support the product anymore. So they sent out an email to all the people who paid $300 for this device and said, as of May 1st, we're turning them off uh, and wow. they just don't work anymore. And so wow. that's, that's a real risk that, that consumers have to uh, become aware of. And, you know, too often this is, this is not the way consumers think about purchasing decisions. They don't anticipate these problems. Well, it's becoming, we, I think we're starting to anticipate it. We're starting to realize that because it's become so common among tech products that, you know, I mean, I have, when I look at my internet router and I like look at how many attached devices, there's like 20 devices on it. And only three or four of them are my computer and my phone. The rest are my smoke detector, my thermostat, my, um, you know, all these other things. And I agree to that for some kind of convenience, right? I, I do... I use the network smoke detector because when I'm cooking and the smoke detector starts to go off, instead of going beep, 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 like an old fashioned one, it just goes, uh, the smoke has been detected in the kitchen. And then <laughs> I can, and an alert pops up on my phone and I can, I can hit silent on my phone. And that is like truly a game changer when it comes to smoke detectors. Cause it means less panic when, when I have a hot flame going in my, in my kitchen. I got to switch to an induct induction burner, by the way, for exactly this reason. Uh, but, um, but so that's all well and good, right? Except that, you know, if, if the company goes out of business, um, then it's possible my smoke detector shuts down. Um, and I have uh, so many other products like that in my home. It's a real pickle that we're in. I, I want to ask, though, uh, the, the example you gave of John Deere sounds really egregious because it sounds like the John Deere could simply design the tractor such that it doesn't need a special payload of proprietary software. The tractor could work just as well, but it could be a little bit more open so that they empower, you know, local repair people. You don't need, you know, they could make the software open source and, and say, you know, uh, allow people to upgrade it themselves. That even if John Deere goes out of business, someone could con continue maintaining the software if they wanted to. That's a choice that John Deere has made. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, uh, uh, so that's a very nefarious example. But I want to ask how much of this is due to, you know, just the increasing complexity of all of our devices. You know, like to take Apple is a perfect example of so many of these ills, and Apple's certainly guilty of doing this. But if you went to Apple and said, hey, why can't I repair my iPhone or my MacBook? Uh, let's, let's take the example of a MacBook, because MacBooks have really, laptops have really changed over the last 30 years. Um, I would say, why can't I replace, uh, you know, my hard drive failed. Why can't I just replace my hard drive? They would say, well, we have integrated all of the hardware onto one big chip. It's all part of the motherboard now. And the reason for that is you wanted a, a thin laptop and you wanted a fast laptop. And the laptop can be much faster and thinner and cheaper if we do it all like that. 
that rather than the old fashioned way where it's all modular and you can unplug everything and plug it back in. And uh, when I hear that argument, I'm always like, it, it does, it kind of holds water for me. Like it is a, it, you know, it is a technological uh, feat, what they have done, right? The engineering on a, on a modern MacBook is like truly out of this world, like efficient and powerful and a miracle of modern technology. So, so how much is it, how much of it is just, Hey, this is unfortunately a consequence of our technology getting faster and more complex and how much of it is nefariousness on the part of these companies? So that's a really great question because I, I am the first to admit that designing these sort of like marvels of modern technology um, requires a lot of trade-offs. Um, they're complicated machines. You're trying to balance form factor and price and performance and aesthetics and all of these sorts of considerations. And I think sometimes companies will say, look, um, we have to sacrifice certain aspects of repairability because the market is demanding that we do something else. It wants the device to be thinner or it wants the device to be cheaper. And we can achieve that uh, by sacrificing modularity. Um, part of the problem with that argument is our preferences as consumers are not these sort of like you know, free-floating, independent desires, they are informed by the way companies market their products. Mm -hmm. And so when Apple tells us year after year after year that thinner is better uh, and that this design aesthetic is preferable, that influences what people value. And, you know, that's what marketing does. And and we shouldn't pretend that, that, that it mm -hmm. serves uh, any other purpose. Um, so, you know, Steve Jobs himself, right, who said uh, consumers don't know what they want until we show it to them. <laughs> and uh -huh. they've, they've been showing us what they want us to value. And it is yeah. a product that aligns really well with their economic interests. I think Apple is incredibly, um, you know, a, an incredibly skilled company full of incredibly talented designers. And if they wanted to make a product that was more repairable, I think they could achieve that, but the economic incentives aren't there for them to do that. They need us to keep buying new products over and over again. And so the, that integration you talked about is a really um, key instance of, of that logic kind of playing itself out. So I'll give you one quick example. Please. There's a really, there's a really cheap part um, uh, a, a, a chip that regulates the rate at which your battery charges on your MacBook. Uh, it's made by a company called Intersil. It costs about $15 for this part. Um, and so sometimes if that chip goes bad and needs to be replaced, right, your laptop isn't going to charge without it. So it's essential. And so you could go to a skilled independent repair shop and have them replace that $1,500 or sorry, that $15 part. The problem is Apple has an exclusive output contract with Intersil, which means Intersil is not allowed to sell that part to anyone other than Apple and Apple won't sell it to you or anyone else. So instead wow. of replacing that, that $15 part, you have to replace the entire logic board, which means a $1,500 repair. Yeah. And of course, are you going to repair a laptop for $1,500 or are you just going to buy a new one? 
Um, so we know what happens, right? People buy new ones. In fact, if you so, were to bring that laptop to Apple, to the Apple store and say, hey, it's got this one little problem. Would you fix it? They wouldn't fix it. They'd just say, if you're under warranty, if you're under, if you're under Apple Care Plus and it's covered, they wouldn't fix it. They would just say, here's a new MacBook. <laughs> they just, they just hand it to you. And then they take the old one and they do God knows what with it. Like I, I, maybe they repair it. They do sell refurbished products, but those all seem like just, you know, open box returns. So like when, when Apple takes that broken one from you that they could repair, it's like unclear if they're even repairing it or if they're just sort of like recycling the parts. Yeah, I mean, we don't have good information about what actually happens with those products under those circumstances. My suspicion is, you're right, they are not doing that kind of board level repair. Um, this, is, this is one of the sort of funny secrets about the repair industry is, you know, Apple talks about how its repair people are more skilled and more reliable, but they actually do pretty simple, straightforward repairs. If you want somebody who actually knows how to do the really challenging, intricate board level repairs, you don't go ask Apple to do that work. Mm. You go to an independent repair provider uh, because Apple has no interest in doing that sort of fix. They're doing exactly what you just described. They are going to hand you, an, if it's under warranty, they're going to hand you a new device and send you on your way. And they're probably going to, you know, give that laptop to their, you know, recycling partners to, you know, pull out the copper and the gold and the other valuable components and use that as part of the input in their manufacturing process to, to yeah. make a new laptop to sell to somebody else. But that's not nearly as... Uh, you know, talking environmentally or just in terms of preventing waste, that's not nearly as efficient as simply repairing the laptop and selling it on the secondary market, saying, hey, this is a fixed up MacBook from three years ago. It works great, would be good for a student or, you know, maybe you maybe you need a server for your closet. You know, you buy an old fixed up Mac, Mac mini or something like that. Um, you know, recycling it is is not nearly as good as as fixing it and reusing it. Um, I'd love to talk about AirPods specifically because they're often brought up uh, when, as long as we're on the subject of Apple. Um, uh, tell me about AirPods and how do they show like how, you know, even the design of these products make them, you know, hostile to repair? Yeah, so AirPods are a, a really wonderful example of product design that is just entirely hostile to the very idea of repair. You know, AirPods um, have one obvious, uh, you know, uh, point of failure, and that's their batteries get old, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so after you have them for some period of time, a year or two, what used to be a five-hour battery, you know, might go down to 30 minutes on a charge. And that makes them, you know, hard to use on a daily basis. And so it would be great if you could just swap out the batteries and keep all of the other components of, of your uh, AirPods that you're happy with. But the way they are designed and built makes that nearly impossible. Um, so the AirPods are basically glued and soldered together. So if you want to get at the tiny battery inside of that plastic shell, you basically have to destroy the AirPod in order to remove and replace the battery, at which point, what's the point of replacing the battery? Mm -hmm. uh, now, there is a company that figured out a, a sort of um, clever high-tech technique for kind of drilling out those batteries 
Um, but you know, that was after these products were on the market for years, um, and certainly was not, you know, Apple's anticipated use case. Apple just figured these were basically disposable headphones. You buy them, use them until the battery, uh, is depleted and then, you know, dispose of them in, uh, one fashion or another. Um, they're not easy to recycle. So Apple actually has to pay their recycling partners a premium to even take the AirPods because wow. they're so difficult to recycle. Uh, the, the cost of recycling them is greater than the value of the, uh, the components inside of them. And so I look at that and I, I see that as a design failure. Um, that's a design mm -hmm. that is imposing massive costs on the public. When we think about the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of pairs of these things that have been produced that we know with a great degree of certainty are going to end up in a landfill somewhere. Yeah. Um, and those costs aren't reflected in the price tag, right? That's, that's, you know, what we call an externality. It is a cost borne by everybody else not borne by the people who are part of this transaction. Apple doesn't have to pay for it. The consumer doesn't have to pay for it. But, you know, um, the next generation of, of you know, people inhabiting this planet are going to have to pay yeah. for it. And it's part of this trend because, I mean, look, the, the headphones that you see on my head right now, uh, folks at home, you can imagine, they're a pair of studio headphones, Sony MDRs, I believe they're called, that I got you know, uh, over 10 years ago when I started working at College Humor, I needed a pair of office headphones. They're studio headphones. I have been using them almost daily for 10 years. They work exactly the same as they used to. The ear pads get a little bit, you got to replace those every couple of years because they get a little grody. Apart from that, like the thing works great. And they'll also work great forever until there's like maybe a, maybe I'll, it'll get a bad connection in the cable. That might be kind of hard to repair, but they're very, very durable. Um, but AirPods, like, as you say, they, it's impossible for them to last more than three years. They, they have a death date, like stamped on them invisibly every time that they're made. And you're not told that by Apple. Here's the problem. Uh, AirPods are incredible. <laughs> like, like they're, they're like from a consumer standpoint, you know, you, you get them the first, the first time I got them, I was like, oh my God, they, Apple has solved the problem of the tangled, you know, headphone cable in my pocket, right? They pair so quickly. They sound certainly good enough for me. I mostly listen to podcasts, but I think it sounds good enough for music, right? They're unobtrusive. They've, it makes that nice clack when you close them, right? They're like, from the one hand, a complete consumer design success story. They should be in a museum, right? For like how well designed they are, except for this in, this gigantic flaw that you talk about, which is like the, you know lurking under the surface. My question is, in your view, is there a way to do both at the same time? Like, is there an AirPod out there that, you know, if you could go, you know, fucking grab Johnny Ive by the lapels and shake him and say, God damn it, man, do it the way I want you to do it. Would he be capable of coming up with an AirPod design that doesn't impose this externality, that has a replaceable battery? Or is this a trade-off that the public has to accept to a certain degree. I know, I know that question is very specific to AirPods. Um, and in many, in the tractor case, it's obviously not a trade-off we need to accept, but you know, I'm curious what you think about the AirPod case. So, you know, I'm not an industrial designer and I don't mean to, you know, kind of wave my hands at the real problems that they encounter in trying to build these products and achieve the goals that they have. But I'm pretty confident that if we had, for example, a government mandate about replaceable batteries in consumer products, that Apple would very quickly find a way 
ah. to, to build this device in a way that allowed for user replaceable batteries. Now, they might be a little bulkier than they are now. They might not have the sort of, you know, elegance uh, that we expect with Apple products. I do think a lot of this, you know, a lot of it's about economics. A lot of it is also about a certain design philosophy that Apple has embodied for decades, um, where there is a kind of hostility to outsiders interfering with or interrupting uh, the user experience. And so, mm -hmm. you know, their products are designed in a way to keep the rest of the world out in part because they want to have that experience that you just described of everything just working. And so Apple will have concerns that if, you know, you create user replaceable batteries, what if you buy cheap batteries that aren't good uh, and then you blame us for that? Or, you know, uh, what if, um, you know, allowing independent repair providers degrades the performance of our devices? And, you know, those are legitimate concerns, but I just don't think they come close to outweighing uh, the kinds of harms that we've been talking about, both in terms of economics for consumers and in terms of, uh, of the environmental impact. And so I do think that companies could comply with these sorts of laws. I mean, we've seen lots of examples over the years of design mandates that companies really resisted and learned to live with, and they yeah. created better products for consumers. There, there's so many examples of that. Like one is uh, the very simple one is like mileage requirements for gas powered vehicles. Um, every time the government sets it, you know, th these companies pump out cars that get 15 miles a gallon and then or even less in the past. Then the government says, well, no, it's got to be 20. It's got to be 30, whatever it is. And then the companies grumble and then they just do it. And then we get cars that are, you know, that, that are more efficient. Or um, I think one of the best examples of this is probably like um, Energy Star for home appliances, right? That like home appliances have gotten vastly more efficient um, and it's because there's there's various what incentives and rules and regulations. I don't know the specifics of them, but I know that that transition has happened, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most the 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 clearest example of this that we've seen in the repair context uh, are these eco design regulations that have been implemented in Europe for the past year and a half or so uh, in in the UK and in the EU. And those apply to um, white goods, home appliances, like, you know, washing machines, dishwashers, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And those are rules that say, um, if you're going to sell these products in the European market, the uh, parts have to be replaceable using common everyday tools. You can't expect people to go out and buy special equipment to do repairs. You have to be able to take these machines apart in a way that doesn't do lasting damage to them. And companies figured out a way to comply with those rules. And so now if your, you know, washing machine breaks down, it's a lot easier to take it apart and replace the failed components than it was five years ago. They're thinking about, and they're in the process of developing rules for uh, smartphones and laptops that would approach uh, a similar set of problems. And one proposal, this is not law yet, and it might never be, but one proposal at least is to require these devices, including smartphones, to have user replaceable batteries. Mm. And if Europe requires that, 
then Apple's going to figure out a solution to, to making an iPhone with a battery that can be easily replaced. Wow, that'd be a huge step. Uh, let's talk more about like positive movement in this direction, but we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Aaron Perzanowski. Okay, we're back with Aaron Persinowski. Uh, we're talking about right to repair, and, and you just told us about this EU regulation that might impel uh, Apple to, for instance, come up with a way to have a user-replaceable battery. You also said, by the way, that this rule would require uh, products to be opened using easily acquirable tools. And that's a really, that is a really common one that I know from my own efforts to repair my own devices that a lot of times devices will come with like proprietary screwdrivers that you like need, you need Apple's special screwdriver or you need someone else to reverse engineer Apple's special screwdriver just to open the backs of the, of the stuff. It's really wild. Yeah, so you know, like a decade or so ago, Apple started using this new type of screw, the pentalobe screw. Um, and you know, at the time, nobody had these things. Um, and it was really difficult initially to find them. And now, you know, because of Apple's kind of, you know, large presence in in the consumer market, you can pick them up on Amazon for a few dollars. But there's a whole uh, universe of these uh, exotic fasteners that are really designed to make it difficult for you to open up a device and just, um, you know, diagnose what's going wrong and replace a part or even just understand how it operates. The other thing that we're seeing more and more of now, which is even worse, I think, than these exotic screws is the way glue is being used, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, you've got to like microwave a bag of rice and let it sit on your, uh, the screen of your device for 10 seconds to loosen up the glue so you can pry the screen off. Wow. Um, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, techniques like that, that um, even if they're not intentionally designed to make it difficult to repair a product, really um, raise those barriers in a way that non-professionals are just scared away from trying to repair a device. Yeah, I mean, I've had the experience so many times of going on I fix it to see how I might fix something that I own and going, oh, I can't do that. Like, I can't remove glue. If there's glue involved, I don't do it because it's like I'm going to fuck with something and break it as opposed to something that was designed, you know, for you to be able to repair. I mean, you know, there's plenty of devices. Good example is I, I once was able to um, replace the battery on my older Kindle and it wasn't that hard. You know, I was able to order a battery and I and just in in doing it, I was like, this is clearly not designed for me to do it, but there's nothing in it that's preventing me specifically from doing it. There's no there's no hostility to it. Like you open up the back and the the battery's right there. Or even like, you know, older Mac laptops, you could install RAM on them. <laughs> I remember buying just buying extra RAM, you open it up, the RAM is visible, you just push it right in, you put the screws back on. You know, it's something that like it's fun to do it, right? Like, oh, I upgraded yeah. it myself. Or replacing a hard drive or something like that. Um it's really a it's really a sea change that we've had. Well, let's talk about in the U.S. 
Um, there is a growing movement behind right to repair. Um, I believe some states and maybe even the, the federal government have been considering putting in some laws or some regulations around it. Are there any updates around that? Are, are, you know, is, are our governmental regulators finally starting to wake up about this issue? So this has been a years long fight to try to get some recognition of the rights of consumers in the repair space. Um, And this started in the early 2010s in Massachusetts, where by referendum, the voters of Massachusetts passed a law uh, that addressed repair in the automotive space that says uh, car companies have to make parts and tools and information available to car owners and to independent repair shops. And that became kind of a model that the industry adopted uh, across the United States and has really led to greater repairability of of cars. Um, There have been some changes since then that make it a little bit more difficult with the shift to telematics and the kind of wireless uh, uh, sharing of information between the vehicles and dealers. But that became kind of the model for a much broader right to repair legislation for all consumer electronics devices. And we've seen more than half of the states in the U.S. have introduced bills to um, to mm-hmm. expand the ability to repair devices. Um, we haven't seen any of them pass yet. They haven't been signed into law Uh, But Mm. every year we see more progress. Uh, We still have bills pending in a whole bunch of states right now and still could see them pass this year. There's also three or four different pieces of federal legislation that have been introduced in the U.S. Congress that would address repair. Um, Some of those, I think, are going to see some some movement in the coming year. Uh, The Federal Trade Commission has been active in this space, uh, thinking about enforcing existing consumer protection rules in a way that would crack down on some of these repair restrictions. And they're, um, I think, contemplating making some new rules that would apply more broadly to give companies um, a clear sense of of what kinds of restrictions are are sort of, um, you know, beyond the pale. Um, So I think that's a that's a process that's ongoing. And but one that I think is really promising. So we've seen more movement in the past couple of years than we have in a long time. But I always tell people this is this is not a fight that is ever going to be won. Um, Mm. Companies will always find new ways to uh, design around existing regulations. There are always going to be new technologies that we have to figure out how the repair debate will will apply to. And so um, there's good encouraging news here, but I think everybody that's involved in this policy space realizes that this is this is a fight that you've got to be ready for for the long haul. Yeah, but I it has had a little bit of an effect on some of the company's practices, like just just, you know, the the specter of federal action or state action can cause these companies to to make a shift or at least make the appearance of a shift. So I know that Apple last November announced uh what did they call it the the self-service repair program that would do i I, let's see i've got it up here on cnn uh you know give give uh make make different parts and tools available at launch for the iphone 12 and iphone 13 i mean was this 
program. What do you know about it? Was this a real program or is this just, you know, the appearance of trying to mollify regulators by saying, oh, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. But, you know, not really making a big difference. It's hard to say. Right. So right now it is an announcement of a future program. It is not a thing that exists in the world at this point. Um, Assuming Apple makes good on this promise, which I expect it to do because it was so public about it that it's not going to be easy for them to back down from this. Uh, But assuming they make good on the promise that they made, they're going to make screens, batteries and cameras available for two models of iPhones. That's a big policy reversal for Apple. They have been incredibly reluctant to make parts available to anyone outside of their sort of authorized repair network. Because let me ask, I remember I used to have friends when I was living in New York, people would smash their phone screen and they'd say, oh, instead of going to the Apple store, you can go to the guy on the corner can repair your iPhone screen. But they're using a third party screen, not an Apple screen. And that can cause you know, incompatibility problems or, or Apple, I think even sometimes will like recognize a part as not being first party and like your phone gets bricked. So this, so the change here would be yeah. that that guy on the corner could get an official Apple screen I want, or gal on the corner. I want to be clear. <laughs> could get an official yeah. Apple screen um, and install that. And that would be an improvement in the, in the regime if it were to actually come, come to happen. Right. So what Apple has said is they will make these parts available to iPhone owners. So directly to the consumer. Oh, um, okay. Now, what the consumer does with it, they might take it to that person and have them do the installation. But I think Apple remains pretty skeptical about the idea of selling parts to repair providers unless they've signed some sort of contractual agreement with Apple that restricts what they can do uh, in terms of repair. So they're going to make these things available to consumers. And that's good. Um, but there are a lot of unanswered questions here. I don't know what these parts are going to cost. If Apple mm-hmm. tells you, yeah, sure, we'll sell you a screen for $399, or you can have us repair it for 450 or whatever the price might be. That doesn't strike me as like really changing things all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple has a lot of software restrictions, as 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 you mentioned, um, when it comes to recognizing those parts once they've been installed. We don't know exactly how that software authentication process is going to work for consumers doing self-repair. Um, we don't know how easy the process is going to be. Um, how many hoops are you going to have to jump through to prove that you own this phone and that you need this particular part? Even with Apple's own authorized service providers, they don't just sell you parts uh, at whatever volume you want. You have to, as an authorized service provider, you have to show, I have a customer here with this phone, with this problem, send me one part to fix this device. Wow. Um, so Apple's really, really, um, you know, keeps a, a tight grip on these components because they're really worried about, you know, the the repair market sort of thriving and and cannibalizing sales of new devices. But so this is the this is the equivalent to when you take your car to the shop and and they're they're like, yeah, we could solve your problem, but we don't have the part. We got to order the part and it'll take three weeks. And you're like, I don't get my car back for three weeks because you need to order it. Why don't you just have the part? Um, And so this is I never thought of that. that. That's like a completely manufactured problem. Like these companies could just 
like they could have a system where just like, yeah, I got a whole stack of parts right here. Um, but instead they restrict the supply to make the repair harder. Um, that is, uh, I'm going to say that's bad. <laughs> it's, it is not great. I think is, uh, yeah, it's a yeah. fair, it's a fair assessment. So you're right though. Apple has made this really big concession. We've seen in the past couple of weeks, other companies, Samsung, um, uh, Google have announced partnerships with iFixit to make parts available. Um, you've seen companies like Microsoft reconsidering their position on repair in part due to these regulatory efforts that are kind of looming over them, but also because these companies have been getting pushback from their shareholders who are saying, we're worried about the environmental consequences of this. We're worried uh, about, you know, the, the, the downsides of limiting repair. And so companies are, I think, starting to recognize their current positions are pretty untenable. John Deere right now is facing um, 11 private antitrust lawsuits over their repair restrictions, class actions, wow. Wow. and an FTC investigation. So people are feeling the pressure. And so we're starting to see them uh, back off of, of you know, these um, you know, pretty pretty aggressive positions they've been maintaining for the last several years. Yeah. Well, let's end on this because uh, one thing I'd love to talk about is that in the last year, I have discovered myself how many repair options there actually are for my technology. It, despite this huge problem, there, you know, once you start looking for it, it there, it is a little bit easier to repair your stuff than you might think. I've had the experience of like looking on iFixit, which is a site we've mentioned a couple times. It's a site and company that publishes uh, repair guides for all kinds of different products and will sell you the tools and sometimes even the parts uh, that you need. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, something I did myself as a little hobby project over the, the winter break was I am a video game player, as folks who listen might know, and I had an Xbox One controller that the top right bumper broke. Um, like it was, you know, the, the R1 button for those who play or the RB button. Um, and it just like suddenly something snapped in it and the button just stopped working. And I was like, I was like, I could, I was literally in a box of shit to donate to Goodwill and Goodwill had just thrown it out because it didn't work. Um, but instead I went on, I fix it and I looked it up and they had not just a guide to fixing the button. They would actually sell me the little button assembly, like the literal, just plastic piece, literally like probably cost a nickel this piece. Like it was just a little plastic tab that snapped off. And so I bought that from them and I bought a, a toolkit. They have like a toolkit of all the different tools you might need to repair any kind of device. And I got it and I opened up the controller. I started, you know, I swore and cursed a little bit because it took me like two or three tries to actually do it right because I'm not used to repairing things. I had to like put it together. It still wasn't working. I had to take it apart and do it again. But then I finally fixed it um, and I closed it all up and I was like, oh my God, it's as good as new. It cost me $7 for the part, plus the price of the tools, but I can use the tools forever. And I felt so empowered and uh, happy. And, you know, now there's a little story for this device, right, that I have. It's not just some Xbox controller that I that I got for free with the system. It's a, um, it's a controller that I myself fixed that is special to me. Um, and it was so super empowering. And... Um, you know, I, I, I'd love for more people to have that experience and, and I'd love to talk about some ways that they can. Uh, so I love that story so much. That's really great because um, it, it illustrates a couple of points, right? One is 
we are living in an era that like could be the golden age of repair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, information is available all over the place, right? Um, not only will I fix it, sell you tools and parts and give you a really beautiful step-by-step walkthrough. I guarantee there are a hundred videos on YouTube of someone showing you right in real time, mm-hmm. how to execute this repair. So information yes. is all over the place. And that's part of what these companies are reacting against. It is a nightmare for them for this information to be out there in a way that the average person can figure it out for themselves, right? And so that's part of the reason we've seen all of these restrictions emerge. It's a losing battle in the long run. And I think they, I think they understand that. Um, the other thing that, that your story really highlights uh, is the way that repair changes our relationship with the things that we use, um, rather than it just being some off the shelf device indistinguishable from the millions of other controllers that were produced by Microsoft. This one is yours in a unique Mm -hmm. and like palpable way, right? You've got a connection to it. Um, You feel a, a different kind of dynamic, a different kind of relationship with that device. And you see this all the time, right? People who drive around the same beat up old truck for 25 years it's not because they can't afford a new one necessarily, but it's because they're like emotionally invested in yeah. this one. They have got a lot of stories to tell, right? About wrecks they were in and fixes they made. <laughs> and, you know, that I think is really important, right? It's part of our kind of individual autonomy that we feel like we have some control over the products we use. We're not just kind of like passive consumers we're playing an active role in interacting with the technology that we all depend on so much. Yeah. And I think that's that's a big piece of why repair matters because like we need to feel like we are actively engaged with all of these devices that, um, that you know, they're not running our lives. We're using them to kind of fulfill our goals. So I think that I think that repair really helps us uh, see things from that perspective. Yeah. And it, I mean, it turns it from a passive consumer relationship into a a hobby relationship or a more involved relationship. I mean, I, I've started also in the last year, you know, uh, I I would hesitate to say collecting retro video games and equipment, but just sort of like, you know, purchasing them occasionally and, and, you know, uh, you know, being a little bit more intentional in how I use them. And one of the really cool things about that community is that, you know, that's that's generally a bunch of technology from the 80s and 90s, and it's extremely tinkerable. And so, you know, a lot of being a part of that community for people is like, OK, I have an old I have an old busted Game Boy. And uh, what do I do with it? You know, I can I can fix it. I can put a new screen on it. I can put a new shell on it. I can make it mine. I can customize it. Um, you know, one of the reasons I bought this equipment for my fix and I bought a soldering iron was I was like, oh, I have an old game and I could replace the battery so that it can start, start saving again. I can buy a little button battery and there's all these uh, guides to that. And it's like I can love on it. I can love it and I can make it I can make it new again and I can continue, you know, my relationship with it. And the crazy thing about that is that's something that the users of these uh, of this technology are doing. Nintendo itself, the company that I, you know, was basically brought up loving, <laughs> right? Like I have a, such a long, deep relationship with this company. This company doesn't give a shit about its old hardware. 
You know, you can't buy an old game. People love the Game Boy Advance so much, but you can't go buy an old Game Boy Advance from them. They won't sell it to you. They won't sell you the parts. They won't refurbish it. They won't repair it. They won't do any of it. But there's this community of people who just like, I, I love these things and I'm going to do it. That's very beautiful. And it's something that that as a society, we could be encouraging on a wider scale. People certainly love Apple products that much. People love Apple products 10 times more than they love Nintendo products. 10 times as many people do. But because of Apple, there's no... There's no community around that. There's no iPhone tinkerers who are like, oh, check out how I modded my, I souped up my old iPhone 3G to like make it modern because I love it so much. Like you can't do it. And that's a, that's a bummer. Yeah. Repair does build community and in a whole bunch of different areas, right? I mean, you think about car culture in the United States over the decades, you know, and a group of people mm -hmm. hanging out in a garage trying to figure out what's wrong with with a device or with a with a vehicle or figuring out how to you know uh, add some new capability same thing you know for farmers right farmers are in these relatively isolated rural communities and historically like they'll get together and if somebody's got a problem with their equipment it's not just one person out there on their own it's a kind of collaborative effort and historically, that's been a collaborative effort that happens face to face. But now we have the ability to collaborate with people in a kind of global community around repair, right? So even if nobody else in your neighborhood is, you know, trying to fix, you know, their old Game Boy Advance, there's there's hundreds or thousands of people uh, scattered mm. around the world who you can share information and and you know, share your successes with. And so, you know, that that kind of community building aspect of repair is something that I also really worry that that we might be losing. Um, but at the same time, there's all this evidence that um, that instinct is one that's like so deeply ingrained in who we are as humans that no matter what policies, you know, the John Deere's of the world try to adopt, um, you're, you're not going to beat that out of us, right? Like this is something yeah. that, that people just inherently do and value. And what we want to do is rather than stifle it, rather than let John Deere or Apple stifle it, we want to unleash it. We want to let it flourish because it's such a positive thing about humanity that we can we can encourage and we'll make the world better for everybody. So so let's talk about ways that people can unleash it in their own lives. I mean, I told my own story about going on iFixit and, you know, figuring out I could fix this controller. And I have a couple other things in my house. I'm like, oh, maybe I could fix sometime. But uh, what do you suggest for folks who want to get involved in the fight for right to repair? Pair or want to have that relationship with their own with their own technology. So one thing that's great about this community is there are so many opportunities to like learn how to do repairs yourself, right? So there's this kind of worldwide phenomenon of the repair cafe, right? A spot in your town uh, where you can show up with your broken stuff, and there will be people there who are like eager to help you figure out why isn't your toaster working? What can we do about it? Why, why is your printer jammed and how do we fix that? And it's a kind of collaborative face-to-face -face kind of process. Um, so you've got repair cafes, you've got fix-it clinics, you've got restart parties. These things go by all sorts of different names depending on what part of the world you're in. And that's really like the grassroots on the ground uh, repair effort. Um, there's also opportunity at the policy level uh, to, you know, 
do the kind of democratic work to pressure legislatures, right? Call your local state uh, senator or state representative and ask them, why aren't they supporting the right to repair bill in your state? Or call your congressman uh, and have those kinds of conversations. One of the things that I think is really unique in our political culture about repair is it is a truly nonpartisan issue. The public polling on repair shows, number one, overwhelming support, like over 80% of, of people support the idea of the right to repair. And it's true for Republicans, Democrats, independents. If you look at who's introducing these state level bills, um, you know, it's a coin toss as to what party that person belongs to. So this is an issue that like cuts across all of the usual uh, kind of political divides. And I think that's part of the reason that the success here is starting to feel so much more uh, possible, so much more likely, because you don't get to just disregard this issue as like, oh, that's just something that people on the left care about, or that's just something that, you know, that the the MAGA crowd is into. No, actually, pretty much everybody is aligned on yeah. this one, except for the most valuable corporations in the history of the planet. Uh, that's that's the, <laughs> yeah, one the biggest downside, political right? donors and, and all that. Um, but there, I mean, there really is a movement around this stuff. Um, and there's also companies that are, that are trying to build their businesses around it. Like I fix it, or you mentioned, uh, this company, the swap club, which figured out how to replace the batteries on AirPods. I've used that company yeah. myself cause I had AirPods that were dying and this thing had just come out and it worked great. You send them your old AirPods. They send you a new pair and repair your old ones. They don't repair your old ones. They send you a preview. They send you someone else's repaired AirPods. And if you if your AirPods are running out of batteries, you don't want to you know give Apple what like almost two hundred dollars for a new pair of AirPods. You can get them repaired for sixty from this company. Um, and mm -hmm. if you look for it, there are other examples like that of ways you can fix your own stuff or companies that will allow you to buy something refurbished, buy something used. I mean, what are the consequences, by the way, of the lack of these things being repaired and the incredible turnover, the degree to which Apple wants you to to buy, you know, um, a brand new phone every two years is there are so many used phones just floating around all over the place. Or if you want to buy a Kindle, like there's no reason to buy a new Kindle. You can find so many cheap Kindles on eBay. Um, at the very least, you're not then buying a brand new thing. You're you're a little bit further down the, the stream, <laughs> the, the supply chain. Um, but there are ways to, in addition to that public pressure, to just sort of like work used and repaired goods into your own life in, in ways that are really, really uh, nourishing, I think. Yeah, and there, there are companies making new products that are designed to be repairable. So I'm a big fan mm. of secondary markets. I'm a big fan of buying things used. Companies do their best to, to deny people access to that market. So Apple loves to do mm -hmm. these trade-ins where like, give us your old phone and we'll give you a big discount. That's because they don't want that thing floating around for someone else to buy it used, right? So that's why right. they're always encouraging us to trade in. So they're um, literally just trying to take it off the market so that you can't buy it on Swappa or eBay or one of these other sites. They they want to restrict the supply of of used phones. And they they can sell it refurbished, but they'll sell it at a higher price. Um, right. Or they'll use it, as I said, you know, before they'll recycle it uh, and, and extract those raw materials. Um, if you want to buy a product that is designed to be repaired from the outset, 
Uh, there's a great company called Fairphone that sells a mm. modular smartphone where literally you open up the back of it and the instructions for replacing and repairing components are printed inside the phone. It's like step-by-step wow. -step instructions that are just there for you. They make it as easy as possible. If they come out with a new upgraded camera, you can just buy the camera module and swap wow. it out. Keep your phone, upgrade the camera. Uh, there's a company called Framework that makes these repairable laptops. Um, it's, you know, those, these are sort of kind of uh, niche markets still at this point. But mm -hmm. the success of these companies, I think, demonstrates that there are people who want to make purchases with, with repair in mind. Even, you know, big manufacturers like Dell have announced plans for uh, these like ultra repairable products because they see this as a way of competing with, you know, the dominant firms like Apple in this space that so far have, have not been particularly hospitable to, uh, to repair. So I, I see the market as, you know, evolving in a, in a positive direction here, but you know, you're, you're up against companies that have some, some pretty strong footholds in the market already. Yeah. I mean, you know, Apple's supply chain domination is so extreme that it's like hard to see that happening. It's hard to see anyone competing with them because they've got this vertical integration that is like unmatched worldwide in the absence of some kind of regulation. But we're starting to see movement on that regulation and we're starting to see other companies sort of want to step in and fill the gap. It's it's actually pretty encouraging. I think it is. I mean, I'm not by nature an optimistic person, um, but this is an area that, you know, that I've, that I've been working in, you know, for, for several years now. And I do see really encouraging signs. Um, I do think that we are, you know, a few years away from big changes and big changes that are driven by, you know, shifts in the market and consumer preferences, shifts in law and regulation. And eventually, I think we're, we're going to reach a point that is significantly better than the one we're in today. Uh, then, you know, the fight is probably going to shift to, you know, how repairable are your VR glasses uh, instead of how repairable <laughs> is your smartphone? So it, it doesn't end. But I think I think that um, those those wins can be translated into new areas pretty easily. Amazing. Aaron, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show to talk to us about it. It's been incredibly fascinating. Um, uh, the name of the name of your book is once again, it's the right to repair reclaiming the things we own. Great. And you can get it, of course, on our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books or at your local bookstore, wherever you want to shop or go to your local library. Aaron Prisanowski, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can't thank you enough for being here. This was this was great. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you once again to Aaron Perzanowski for coming on the show. You can find his book at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank everyone who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Adam Simon, Adrian, Allison Liparato, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Conover, my dad, thank you, dad, Drill Bill, M, Hillary Wolken, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Lacey Tiganoff, Mark Long, Michael Warnicky, Michelle Glittermum, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Nicholas Morris, Nuyagay, 
Kick, Ippaluk, Paul Malk, Rachel Nieto, Robin Madison, Samantha Crockett, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, and Tyler Darich. And if you want to join them, once again, head to patreon.com slash Conover to join our community. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest, for building me the incredible custom gaming PC I recorded this very episode for you on. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factually. Factually.